thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. Now, of course, for the last couple weeks, we've been looking at the book of Luke, chapters 14 through 16, to see the truth that Jesus teaches about how to have a life of significance. And, and every one of us want to have a life that matters. We want to have a life that, that means something more than just we lived on this earth for however many years and used up all the oxygen we could and then died and no one cares. We want to have a life that matters. We want to be part of big something that is bigger than ourselves. And so in the first week we were together, we saw what our purpose is according to God to have a life of significance. And as a child of God, as a believer, our purpose is to obey God. Whatever God tells us to do in his scripture, whatever God tells us to do by prompting of the Holy Spirit, no matter what anyone else says or thinks, our responsibility, our purpose is to obey God. Then our purpose is to glorify God. And everything that we do, we are to bring honor and glory to God. That's in, in how we, of course, come to church and worship and how we treat our spouses, how we treat our neighbors, how we act at work, how we raise our kids. Everything we do is to be done to the glory and honor of God. And then we are supposed to help God go after those who the world has forgotten. Those that the world has turned their back on, those are the ones that God wants us to go after. Then next week we saw what really matters to God. What does God really care about? And we saw that God cares about finding lost people, and we are meant to help them find God. God came to seek and to save that which was lost, and he wants us to help him as he seeks the lost of the world. So today, we're going to look at the subject of what your worth really is in the eyes of God. Too often in our culture... We're very concerned about what people think about us. We're very concerned about how people view us. That's why, that's one reason I hate social media so much. Because so much trouble has been caused by people getting on social media and looking about how other people put their, how other people's life is. And look, everyone puts the best on social media. You have to understand that. Someone's marriage can be falling apart, their kids can be burning the house down, their dog can be dying, and they're going to put, I'm blessed, look at how great this thing is, and they're, they're going to put their best out there. They're, they're not even going to put their best, they're going to they're gonna lie. So whatever you see on social media and you see, man, I wish I was like so-and-so, she's got her life all together. No, she doesn't. And look, here's something I've noticed. The more they portray their life is all together, the more it's not. So that person is like, oh, my life is great. My husband's so great. My kids are so great. I'm just so awesome. Their life is miserable. And they're just trying to put stuff out there. But we see that, and we try to keep up. And then what we'll do is we'll, we'll put something out there, or we'll put a post out there, or we'll write a blog, or, or we'll, we'll tell, put a post or a picture, and people don't like it enough. And, oh, man, some, I only got three likes on my photo. I guess no one likes me. 
Well, probably, but that's not really why they did it. But so we, we, we find value in what everyone else thinks about us. And that's dangerous. And that's unscriptural. The only person whose opinion matter to us is God. Now, you can take that two ways. You can say the only person whose opinion matters to me about me is God, so I'm just going to, I don't care what anybody else thinks, and you can be the biggest jerk in the world. That's not what you're supposed to do. But you're supposed to say the only opinion that matters is God. So whatever other people think about me or however people feel about me, as long as I'm doing all I can to honor God and glorify God and obey God, it doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what the people think. All that matters is what is my worth to God? So what is your worth to God? Well, in your Bibles, in chapter, Luke chapter 15, we're going to start reading verse number 11. The Bible says, And a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided them unto his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a faraway country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, <coughs> there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the said son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be in want. Now, of course, this story is one of the most famous stories in Scripture, and it's a story that we know as the story of the prodigal son. But the word prodigal never appears in the scripture. It's like the word rapture, like I said this morning in the Sunday school. Prodigal never appears in the Bible. Now, the Oxford Dictionary, the word prodigal means recklessly wasteful or extravagant. So when we see this story, we see the son living the way that he does and wasting all the money that his father had given him. And we see him as the prodigal. He was recklessly wasteful of his father's inheritance. He was, he was extravagant in the way he lived. He wasted his father's money with extravagant living. He recklessly wasted his inheritance. But I don't believe the son is the prodigal in this story. I believe this story should be called the story of the prodigal father. Notice how the story begins. A certain man had two sons. Now, in English, English word sentence structure is a subject I hated. I hated diagramming sentences. I, I never saw the point of it. 
Uh, to me, it was stupid. It was like algebra. You know, I'm never going to use it in my life. My algebra teacher always said, you're not going to have a calculator on you all the time. Well, yeah, I do. But so, you know, what I use algebra for to figure out the tip. That's all I ever use it for. And so English sentence structure, it just, I never understood it. I could speak real good, so I was fine with that. And so, some of y'all call it that. Uh, some of you don't do good at English. And so I never understood it. But in this English sentence structure, the father is the subject of the story. The sons are the object of the story. So this story is about this father and how he is his extravagant, how he is extravagant with his love for his children. How he recklessly is wasteful and how he shows his love. Now in every story in the Bible, you can see yourself and God in the story. Now in this story, we of course are the son. The one that left, that wasted his life, and they had to come crawling back to dad. God, of course, is the father. So this story is not just about this father and his love for his wandering son. This story is about God's love for you. This story shows what you mean to God. So if you want to know what you mean to God, if you want to know what your worth is to God, we need to study this story. Now, the story, of course, if you remember, Jesus, as he is telling this story, he is talking to a group of Pharisees. And this is the third parable that he's told in a row. And of course, we saw the first week, whenever this, last week, whenever Jesus would tell parables, he would always tell a parable, pause, explain it. Tell a parable, pause, explain it. Sometimes to the crowd, sometimes to his disciples, because they didn't quite get it. But this time, he, he doesn't do that. He just tells one story after another story after another story because he's trying to get a point across to the Pharisees, the, the upper-class uh, religious elite that are there who are mad at him and they're mocking him because he's been hanging out with sinners and he calls himself a rabbi. And what kind of a rabbi would hang out with this, this riffraff and these publicans and sinners? So Jesus is trying to show what really matters to God through these stories. So he talks about a man who loses a sheep, a shepherd who loses a sheep, and of course, shepherd were dirty and vile and the Pharisees couldn't relate to him. And then he talks about a woman who lost a silver coin, who lost a coin. And women, of course, were considered property, so they didn't really relate to this. And now he tells a story about this father who, as we'll study, does some things that are just unheard of in this time. Things that would have never happened during this time. So as he's telling this story, he is talking to the Pharisees. And the story begins with the youngest son of a landowner asking his father to divide his property among him and his brother and give him his inheritance. And the father does it. Now, at first glance, it just may just seem like he's a real cool dad. Or maybe he has spoiled his kids and kind of having to deal with what he's raised his kid up. And that may be part of it. But what Jesus is describing to these Pharisees, because remember, you've got to take Scripture in the context it was written. And in the, script, in the, the context it is written, the group of people that Jesus is talking to, for this to happen would have been a scandalous event. What this son was basically doing was coming to his father and saying, I wish you were dead, give me what's coming to me. Now, if a son did that, what every other father would do 
would have that kid stoned to death. It's extremely disrespectful. It's extremely hurtful. So if you, as a Jewish boy, were to come to your dad and say, you know what, I hate you. You're worthless to me. I wish you were dead. Just give me what's coming to me. If you survived that ordeal, you were lucky. Not alone if your dad said, okay. So this was unheard of in this time. So no one in this culture, first of all, no one in this culture would make that type of request to their father. Even if they didn't like their dad, they respected the father, the position of father too much to do that. So his, he, he was basically telling his dad he wished he was dead. Uh, in a book I read about this, Ibram Saeed, he's a Middle Eastern Christian author, he said this. He said, the shepherd in this section for the sheep and the woman in her search for the coin do not do anything out of the ordinary beyond what anyone in their place would do. Shepherd loses a sheep, he goes finds it. Woman loses a coin, she finds it. That's common. But the actions of the father takes in the third story are unique marvelous, divine actions, which have not been done by any father in the past. So put yourself in this culture. Put yourself in this father's position. Your son comes to you, this hateful son. He says, my life would be better off if you were dead. Divide your inheritance, divide the inheritance so I can have my share of the estate. I don't even want to be around you anymore. And to everyone's amazement, the father doesn't. He agrees. Look how the story continues. In verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance on riotous living. Now, what we typically think when we read this story is the father went to the bank real quick, made a pretty substantial cash withdrawal, gave it to the son, and the son just left. He went out and he was partying. That's not what was happening. Now, this, this father, this man, he was, he was probably wealthy, but he was probably cash poor. Most people were. All his money was tied up in his farm. All his money was tied up in his possessions. So what he had to do was he had to divide his land, half his farm, half his servants, half of everything, and sign it over to this younger son. Then, Now, the younger son, if you've ever traveled, you can't travel with land. He had to sell it. This is going to take some time. So this boy, this son, he's not just hurting his dad's feelings. He's hurting the family. He's taken half of their earnings. He's taken half of the potential they have to make money for the rest of their lives, and he is selling it. And so his, his motivation for leaving, he wanted to get out of town, but the Bible says that he, not many days after, why did he wait at all? Well, he had to liquidate his inheritance. He had to find a buyer for his portion of land and his portion of the livestock, and the only people he could sell to were the people in the village around him. Now, Jesus is telling that those, to this story to those who are listening, and they are imagining now, this is a very small community style back in this culture. So, you got to imagine, you ever grew, you ever been, who grew up in a small town? All right, a couple of you. Everybody know everything in that town? I mean, you ever grew up in a place where just everybody knew everything that's going on? That's what this culture was. Everyone in the village knew what this son had done. They knew how disrespectful he had been to his dad. They're shocked he's even alive. 
But now here comes this brat. He's knocking on the door. Hey, you want to buy some land from me? Hey, you want to buy some, some livestock from me? And so he has to go to people who, and this, this community, this isn't just like, I can't believe we do this. You've got to imagine these people would begin to hate this kid because he was being so hurtful and hateful to his father. So now he's, he's going, everyone in town, they knew that he had insulted his father. They knew he had shamed his family, basically telling his dad he wished he was dead. Now he's doing the unthinkable. He is selling the property and possessions that have been in the family for generations. After a while, I'm sure he felt more and more pressure to get out of town. Because no one wants to stay somewhere where everyone hates you. And everyone in this city, in this village, they began to hate him. He is doing so much to hurt his father. So he sells everything he can and he leaves as soon as he can. But by now, the townspeople are openly antagonistic to him. He's being shamed and there's, there's talk about him as he walks around the village. And as soon as everything is sold and he has all the money he can, he leaves to go to a faraway country. Now, while he's in this faraway country, he gradually finds himself in the most miserable position he can. He goes out, he, he doesn't use the money to start a business or buy land. or do, He just uses the money to live. And money doesn't last very long. You know, people you know, used to think, man, if I could get a million dollars, all my troubles would be over. And, you know, I don't, I've never had a million dollars. But I can tell you now, a million dollars ain't a whole lot. It ain't going to last very far. Now, I'd like to see how far it would go, but it's not going to go as far as I would like it to. You know, there's no mansion with that. And so, but, so he, his money runs out pretty soon. Then there's a famine in the land. And so he finds himself in a miserable position. Again, look at verse number 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his, country into, and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. He wasted all his money. And even the people in this faraway country, they know it. Because here this kid is, he shows up, he's flush with cash. I'm sure he's showing off, trying to get a reputation. But after a while, he runs out, and so all of a sudden, this, this kid who had all this money when he showed up, now he's begging people for work. So even the people in this faraway country know that he's wasted all this money, and they are unimpressed with his lifestyle. When he's out of money, no one offers to help. In fact, they want him gone. How do we know they want him gone? Because in this culture, if you wanted to get rid of someone, you didn't go to them and say, go. You gave them a job that they couldn't do or that they would not be able to accept. You gave them something to do that they would be unwilling or unable to do. So he goes to ask for a job, and what job do they give him? Feed the pigs. He's a Jewish boy. Pigs are dirty. Pigs are unclean. They're tasty, but they're unclean. According to the law of Moses, he can't even be around them. And now he's got to feed them. Not only that, but pigs need to be fed seven days a week. So now he can't even obey the law of the Sabbath. And the job they give him, they pay him so little, he can't even feed himself. So here's this Jewish boy in a faraway country, feeding unclean animals, avoiding not being able to honor the Sabbath because he's got to work, and still starving to death. Saying, I wish I could eat the slop 
that the pigs eat. Have you ever seen what pigs eat? I ain't never been that hungry. That's how hungry he is. Pigs eat, pigs eat people. Pigs eat anything. So if you're like, man, I wish I could eat what that pig eats, no. Now, I'm fine with what they eat because, again, it makes them tasty and delicious. But they eat disgusting things. And so he's in a, in a very difficult position. But to everyone's surprise, he accepts a job. But it's a terrible job. doesn't pay him enough to feed himself. And so he is in the worst possible position he could find himself in. And he starts to honestly think about his life. He starts to look at his life and think, how did I end up here? And what am I going to do to fix it? There's, there's no life for him in this foreign land, but he, he can't go back to his father either because he's humiliated his dad. He's disrespected his dad. He can't just show up and think, oh, dad's going to take me back as his son because of what he did. So he has nothing to even offer his father and he isn't even sure he'd be accepted after the way he treated him. So he can't go back to his dad. He can't go back to his village and just live in that village because everyone hates him there. But maybe he thinks I can go home and if I beg my dad for forgiveness, maybe he'll let me just be a servant in his house. He doesn't want to be a son. He doesn't want to be reestablished in a family. He doesn't want to have everything be just forgiven and forgotten. He's like, I'll go home, I'll beg dad, and maybe, just maybe, he'll let me be a servant. So he decides to go home and admit to his father that he was wrong and beg to be allowed to be serving his home. Now, there's a problem with this plan. Even if the father accepts him, he still had to face the town. He still had to face his brother. still had to face his mom. He still had to face everyone else he hurt and everyone else who hated him. Now, the people of the town, they hated him when he left, and now he's returning a failure. He has disgraced them. He has publicly wished that his father was dead, and then he brought shame on the family by selling the family property. Then he loses all his money to the Gentiles. And so he has no solution as to how he's going to handle the townspeople when he gets back. He figures, I'll, just, I'll have to endure their mocking. I'll have to endure their ridicule. That's all I can do. And so he musters up everything he can, and he returns home. Now, the father in the story, he's more experienced. He's lived life a little longer, and he knows two things. He knew his son was bound to fail. He knew because of his maturity level, and because of his character, that when he left home, that he was going to fail. And he figured if he ever does come home, he's not coming home a successful businessman. Second thing he knew was he knew that the town would not treat his son well if he ever did come home. Since the son left, the people of the town, his, his friends, I'm sure they told him over and over and over again, you, you never should have given him what he asked for. You never should have given him his inheritance. He knows that if his son does come home, a crowd's going to quickly gather and mock him, maybe ridicule him, maybe even spit on him, maybe even hurt him. So he knows the son will have to endure the scorn of the crowd with every step he takes through the town to get home to his father. So what does he do to handle this situation? He does five things that the Pharisees would consider 
outrageous. And they were done to protect and restore the son he loved so much. The son who had rejected him and turned his back on him. The first thing he does is he runs to the son. Look at verse number 20. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran. When he sees his son coming, he runs to him. And this is significant because instead of making his son suffer by walking through the town by himself, he runs to him to take, to take the shame for him. He went to his son so his son wouldn't have to endure the shame of coming home. This is also outrageous because he's a landowner. And in his position, he would wear flowing robes and he never ran anywhere. So he lifts his robes, exposing his ankles, and he runs down the road through the town in front of all of his neighbors and all of his friends. He humiliates himself for his son. And Jesus explains why. His father saw him and had compassion. He was filled with compassion for his son. That's how God the Father feels about his children. He has compassion on us. The Father knows he's creating a spectacle. He knows that what he is doing is going to get noticed and probably talked about for a long time. But imagine the, the son's perspective for a minute. He knows he's coming home, and he knows the people of the town hate him. He knows there's no way he can see his dad without going through the town and enduring the scorn of the people, but he has to get to the father to become a servant. But when he gets there, he's expecting the town to mock him, but instead he sees his father running towards him, embarrassing himself in front of everyone for the sake of the son. So instead of experiencing the judgment for what he does, he finds a visible demonstration of the love of his father. So he runs to the son. Second thing he does, he kisses the son. Again, verse number 20. We had compassion and ran to him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. They're embracing. The son saw himself. He was coming home to humble himself. He wasn't coming home to kiss dad's neck and hug dad. He was coming home to kiss dad's feet and beg for forgiveness. He was coming home to humble himself. And so first he'd kiss his father's hand, then he'd kiss his feet, then he'd beg for forgiveness and be a servant. But the father won't let him. I mean, you see, in verse 19, the son's got a plan. I'm going to go home. I'm going to tell dad I've sinned against heaven and against you. Just let me be a servant. And he goes, he sees his dad. He tries to get his speech out, but his father won't let him do it. His father won't let him ask to be a servant. Instead, he puts his arms around his son and he kisses him in front of everybody to openly show his love for his son. The son can't stoop down and humble himself. All he can do is accept the love of the father. He'd come to ask to be a servant, to try to earn his way back into his father's favor, but the love of the father wouldn't even let him try. He was already in favor with the father. So he runs to him, he kisses him. Thirdly, he dresses him. Look at verse 22. But the father said to the servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. He calls for the best robe to come and be put on the son. Now, who owns the best robe in the house? The father. The father owns the best robe. Except in my house, the wife owns the best robe. 
I don't even own a robe. But so the father owns the best robe. And so they're, they're still standing in view of everyone. And the father wants everyone to know that he accepts his son. What's the son done to earn the father's forgiveness? Nothing. What's he done to earn the father's acceptance? Nothing. He came home and the father loved him. He ran to him. He kissed him and he accepted him in front of everybody. And that's amazing. Despite what the son had done to the father, the father accepts him without making the son do anything to earn it. That's unheard of in this culture. Let's be honest. That's unheard of in all culture, our culture. But that's how much God loves us. So he dresses him. Fourthly, what's he do? He puts a ring and shoes on him. Again, verse 22. Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Now, a lot of theologians believe that this ring was a signet ring. This was a ring that the father would use to sign contracts or to seal mail. So if you had this ring, you could basically conduct business as this, this landowner, as this father. So what he is showing everyone, including the son is this son who had taken half of everything he owned and sold it and wasted all the money, this son who had embarrassed him and hurt him and humiliated him, that this son was a trusted member of the family. The shoes are a sign that he's a free man. Servants didn't wear shoes. Servants went barefoot. So they, they would walk barefoot. So he's showing everyone, I've accepted him, I trust him, and he's not my servant, he's a member of my family. He has shown everyone he trusts his son, and he is accepting him as his son, not making him be a servant. So he puts a ring and shoes on him. And fifthly, he celebrates. Look again at verse 23. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Now, uh, I did a lot of study for this. I read a book, uh, book about this story. And theologians believe that the fatted calf was big enough to feed not just him and the family, but also the servants and also the villagers. He was inviting everyone to celebrate with him that the, his son had returned. So he, he is inviting the entire village to share his joy. The village that hates him. The village that thinks the father was stupid for letting his son do what he did. He is, he is letting them come so that they can see that this son is reconciled to the father, but also so that they can be reconciled to him as well. Because God doesn't want us just reconciled to him. God wants us reconciled to everyone in our life that we've hurt. He wants everyone to have a relationship with his son. So what do you... What, do you know what Jesus is, is doing with this story? He's communicating to everyone who ever wanted to take a step toward God how significant we are to him. God doesn't just wait for us. He runs to us. God doesn't make us bear the shame of sin. He bears it for us. He kisses us. He puts a robe on us. He puts his ring on us. He puts sandals on our feet. And he celebrates with us when we come home. In the eyes of God, we are worth being humiliated for. We are worth God giving up everything for us. What this story shows us is 
no matter what anyone else thinks about you, no matter what anyone else says about you, no matter whatever everybody else thinks you're worth, in the eyes of God, you are extremely valued and you are extremely loved. Knowing that means it doesn't matter what other people think of us. Because God is willing to do the unthinkable and the outrageous to show us how much he loves us.